We are Radio Catskill. From the WJFF studios in Liberty, New York, this is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. On today's show, Sullivan County continues to have the highest overdose death rate in New York State. But a New York Focus analysis found that the average New Yorker has to travel nearly 10 miles to access methadone and other treatments, and upstate, they have to go even further. We'll speak to reporter Spencer Norris from New York Focus about why upstate New Yorkers are more likely to die from an opioid overdose than people living in the city. Plus, the latest headlines from the Sullivan, Sullivan County Democrat, including election news in the village of Monticello. Maggie Fitzpatrick is here with her Moving Toward Health column. And our own classical kit returns to talk about the Music Institute of Sullivan and Ulster County's Community String Ensemble, February 4th, open rehearsal. That's all coming up. First, the news. Grover Coleman, a House committee is expected to vote today on two articles of impeachment against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. NPR's Giles Snyder says Republican lawmakers accuse Mayorkas of refusing to enforce immigration laws amid record numbers of migrant encounters at the southern U.S. border. House Democrats are slamming the impeachment effort. Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries is calling it a sham and is accusing House Republicans of trying to distract the American people with a political stunt. Republicans on the House Homeland Security Committee want to send two articles of impeachment to the House floor, accusing Mayorkas of ignoring a crisis on the southern border and lying to Congress. NPR's Giles Snyder reporting. Stocks are flat this morning as the International Monetary Fund raised its forecast for global economic growth. NPR's Scott Horsley reports the Dow Jones Industrial Average dropped about 25 points in early trading. The IMF now expects the global economy to grow by 3.1% this year, thanks in part to stronger U.S. growth and falling inflation. There's a growing gap between the economic fortunes of the U.S. and Europe. Last week, we learned the U.S. economy grew at a better-than-expected annual pace of 3.3% in the fourth quarter of last year. That's in contrast to the Eurozone, where government trackers said today there was zero growth in October, November, and December. Stock in UPS opened down after the company delivered a lower-than-expected forecast for sales this year. UPS is the small package delivery business in the U.S., not counting Amazon, is expected to grow by less than 1%. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. The Justice Department has indicted an Iranian national and two Canadian men for allegedly plotting to assassinate two people in Maryland. As NPR's Ryan Lucas reports, the lead defendant in the case is suspected of having ties to Iranian intelligence. The indictment says the orchestrator of the alleged murder-for-hire scheme was Naji Sharifi Zindashti. Court papers say Zindashti contacted Damien Ryan, a Canadian member of the Hells Angels, to put together a team of gunmen in early 2021 to kill two people in Maryland. Court papers do not identify the intended victims, but they say one of them had previously defected from Iran. Prosecutors say as Zindashti and Ryan discussed the price tag and logistics for the hit, Ryan coordinated with another Canadian, Adam Pearson, to carry out the assassination itself. The indictment does not accuse the Iranian government of directing the alleged plot, but separately, the U.S. Treasury imposed sanctions on Zindashti and described him as a drug trafficker who leads a network that targets dissidents at the behest of Iran's government. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. The National Weather Service warns heavy moisture is moving into the Pacific Northwest. By tomorrow, the system will generate heavy rain, especially over California. There's a chance of flash flooding in northern and central parts of that state. On Wall Street, the Dow is down nearly 30 points. This is NPR. Author N. Scott Mamaday has died. He was 89 years old. The poet, novelist, and essayist was the first Native American to win a Pulitzer Prize, and he inspired generations of indigenous writers. From member station KUNM in Albuquerque, Megan Kamrick has more. 
Mama Day's 1968 Pulitzer-winning novel House Made of Dawn inspired a renaissance in Native American authors. The book follows a World War II soldier returning home to his native community in New Mexico. It was based on Mama Day's childhood in Jemez Pueblo, although he was born in Oklahoma and was part of the Kiowa tribe. Mama Day regarded oral culture as the source of language, and he told NPR in 2020 his early writing came out of those traditions. And then uh, I had the formal education in poetry at Stanford, so I began to incorporate traditional forms of English poetry into my work. Mm. And so now I have a, a, the combination of both things, which suits me quite well. He received numerous awards, including the National Medal of the Arts and the UNESCO Artist for Peace. For NPR News, I'm Megan Kamrick in Albuquerque. South Korea's president is blocking efforts to launch a new investigation into a deadly crowd crush on Halloween in 2022. 159 people were killed when crowds surged into an alley. A police investigation blamed poor planning and an inadequate emergency response. The U.N. Human Rights Committee has called for an independent probe of the crush. Relatives of the victims are angry over the South Korean government's refusal to comply. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org and the Annie E. Casey Foundation. Welcome back to Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. Upstate New Yorkers are more likely to die from an opioid overdose than people living in New York City. That's an analysis from New York Focus. They're admitted to emergency departments for overdoses 31% more often per capita than people in the five boroughs. And they're prescribed opioids more than twice as often. Although it's one of the oldest, methadone remains one of the best treatment options for patients with severe addictions. And it's become increasingly necessary as the drug supply has become more addictive and more lethal. While the state's plans lag, more and more New Yorkers have struggled to get one of the gold standards for opioid treatment. New York Focus is the independent newsroom reporting on how power and politics in New York impact your life and how the state really works. Radio Catskill has partnered with New York Focus to regularly bring you their in-depth journalism. And Jason Dole spoke with New York Focus reporter Spencer Norris about their findings of New York of New York opioid access disparity. Last year, um, projections were that uh, overdose uh, deaths were an all, at an all-time high in New York State. Um, and, you know, I kind of was looking at this and, uh, was considering it from the perspective that New York, um, to its credit, invests more in, uh, treating, um, addiction than just about any other state in the country. Um, I mean, the state has, uh, a ton of investment into this issue. Um, so it was sort of this question like, okay, if we're throwing so much money at the problem and, now we have this money rolling in from the opi- opioid settlement funds. Why are we seeing uh, death rates continuing to climb? Um, and, you know, it certainly seems like part of that reason has to do with the fact that the vast majority of the state um, appears to be a treatment desert. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we were able to get our hands on uh, some data from uh, the Office of Addiction Services and uh, Supports and um, after we ran our original analysis, we found that not only uh, do people that live outside of New York City have to travel uh, vastly farther uh, distances uh, in order um, in order to access treatment, but that distance is uh, also increasing over time, which is uh, perturbing that um, treatment is further and further out of reach uh, while the need is greater and greater. And you're saying further out of reach, like literally farther away from where people are. We, those of us who live in upstate New York, especially the rural areas, you know, there's a lot of ground to cover with less population density. So in some ways, we're used to always having to, you know, travel a bit. That's not to justify any of this. That's just to explain the reality that we're already dealing with. But that's that's shocking to find that not only is that a hurdle, but that hurdle is increasing 
even as attempts to battle the crisis are increasing. Yeah, and I, I think that the important uh, bit of context here is uh, you're you're right. I live upstate too. I live in uh, the capital region, so I'm used to having to get into get in my car anytime I need to get somewhere. Um, but the thing is that specifically we're looking at uh, methadone treatment, and in order to access methadone, it's something that you have to show up at a clinic for every single day if. Uh, you're going uh, if you're going to get it. You might get one day where you get a take-home dose, but if the distance is increasing for something that you have to go out of your way to do every single day before um, you go to your job, after you drop your kids off, and all that, that's a really significant factor in uh, whether or not um, people are able to access treatment. Um, and the fact is that we found that the distance that uh, people are having to travel uh, to access one of those uh, methadone clinics um, increased uh, about 60% um, from uh, 2018 to 2022. Um, that's just upstate. Um, statewide uh, increased uh, by uh, about, I think it's like uh, three and a half miles, roughly uh, equitable overall. But the point is that um, people are having to travel uh, with pretty significant distance, and those extra miles, those really count um, when it comes to people's everyday lives and being able to manage uh, manage their condition. In a condition in which sometimes it's hard to get people to e even seek out help. You're talking about the hurdle that's being placed in front of people that have made the decision to say, I, I want to fix this. I want to get some treatment here. That's already a big step. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, the thing is, um, everybody I've talked to about this um, just keeps reminding me, on top of it already being difficult to find the resources in the first place, the extra hurdle really comes down uh, to stigmatization of uh, the disease. And methadone is different um, as far as uh, treatment options, as far as a lot of uh, different treatment options, because you have to show up at a physical location, you have to oftentimes wait in the line outside. Um, I mean, people from your community can see you going to the methadone clinic, you know, um, and because of the way that addiction uh, unfortunately still perceived in a lot of the country, I mean, that is in fact a significant uh, hurdle for a lot of people. So one of the things that you found was that there was supposed to be more methadone access and there hasn't been. Can you talk about uh, that discrepancy? Yeah, certainly. Um, the The biggest thing that New York has been doing to sort of try and innovate uh, when it comes to expanding methadone access um, has been these mobile medication units. And effectively, uh, that is a methadone uh, clinic on wheels. Uh, they put everything in the back of a van and they're trying to drive to different locations in order uh, to expand access. So, um, in a briefing uh, book that Hochul was uh, circulating uh, before the state of the state, he was advertising, oh, we have like several of these mobile methadone vans uh, that are operating now. Um, in reality, several means two, and both of those vans are in uh, New York City. Um, so the fact is that this was supposed to be an important measure for expanding access to people that are in like really hard to reach corners of the state especially upstate, um, the way this is shaken out about two years after the state first put out the contract and everything uh, to get these vans, there's only two of them operating and both in the most densely populated part of the state, which already has an oversaturation of services. So a lot of people are looking at this and they're like, what's going on? When are we going to get um, services uh, in our area? Um, there is a plan to launch, uh, an additional, I think nine vans, uh, across the state at this point. Um, but details are a little sparse right now, uh, around like what their routes are going to be and how exactly they're going to operate. What we do know is that some of those vans are going to effectively be working as like a stopgap measure for places that are already supposed to have methadone. Um, for example, there's one that's going to be running out of Ithaca, 
Um, and we spoke with the provider. They told us, well, one of the stops is just going to be the county jail, which legally the county jail is already supposed to offer methadone. So from that perspective, it's not even really expanding access. I mean, it's just fulfilling a legal obligation that was already in place. There was a big push last year to, uh, I mean, just overall make sure that people are taking whatever medication and get whatever treatment that they can. We were airing PSAs along this, uh, but part of that was emphasizing uh, buprenorphine, and I might be pronouncing that wrong, buprenorphine. It's been a while since I've had to say it out loud. Buprenorphine. There it is. Um, so what's the difference between that and methadone, and does the emphasis on buprenorphine uh, affect uh, what's going on with the methadone treatment? Yeah, you know, I'm really glad you, uh, you asked this question because I think a lot of people um, that aren't really plugged in might look at this and uh, say, well, you know, they're getting one medication, not not the other, but one might be as good as the other. So the reason that methadone uh, matters is because uh, we're now in an era of uh, the opioid crisis um, where the drug supply is both more lethal and more addictive. Now, buprenorphine uh, is great. It's a very effective medication in a lot of ways. Um, and it's also easier to get to people because you can prescribe it. You don't need to show up at a clinic every single day. So there's certain uh, advantages uh, to buprenorphine. But now that the drug supply has uh, gotten more addictive and more lethal, buprenorphine uh, isn't cutting it in a lot of ways. It has uh, what's called a ceiling effect, meaning that you can take more and more of it, um, but the limit of its uh, efficacy um, is going to taper off at a certain point. You won't um, get, any, get any extra effects from taking more of it. Methadone does not have that ceiling effect, um, which means that you can prescribe um, at higher levels to uh, adjust for people that have more severe addictions. Like I said, now that fentanyl um, is in play and now that um, uh, the drug supply is uh, so, more, so much more potent, a lot more people need a medication uh, that is going to more effectively manage uh, their treatment. Um, and this is based off of uh, some guidelines uh, that have um, come out by the academic research. Um, often, to be totally clear, buprenorphine will often work for a lot of patients. But this is a really uh, important other tool um, that a lot of uh, clinicians and a lot of patients just don't have access to in the overwhelming majority of the state. You kind of started that answer off by saying, like, you know, this is the reality within essentially the war on drugs. Uh, is the war on drugs, in your view, to blame for these uh, drugs becoming stronger and more addictive? I'm glad, I'm glad you asked that. So um, I, I can't offer uh, my own opinion on the matter, um, but there is uh, this principle um, that uh, a lot of uh, people um, watching the war on drugs uh, have identified. It's called um, the Iron Law of Prohibition. And the basic idea is that if you take any controlled substance and you try to regulate it out of existence, it's going to lead uh, to more and more potent versions of the same thing coming out on the market. And, I mean, this is true going all the way back to, well, I mean, prohibition uh, when the United States banned alcohol. Um, once uh, wine and uh, other spirits were sort of um, regulated out of existence, it led the, to the proliferation of moonshine, which was uh, significantly uh, higher potency. The reason for this largely has to do with the fact that if uh, you're operating at the black market, it's easier to transport greater amounts of the same material uh, with uh, less risk of getting caught. So um, according to the Iron Law of Prohibition, it makes sense that uh, as we regulated um, a lot of opioids out of existence, that uh, you want with more and more uh, lethal um, alternatives. Um, and that's why we went from uh, sort of oxycodone in the early days uh, to heroin and now on to fentanyl and different fentanyl derivatives, uh, which can be hundreds or thousands of times uh, more potent than, uh, than heroin was. So 
to answer your question, I think that um, there is a sort of theoretical ground that explains uh, why the drug supply is uh, getting more potent, and it does have to do uh, with uh, with the war on drugs. To get back to the disparities between upstate and downstate, one of the things that stood out to me in your reporting uh, was, uh, again, realizing like, well, of course, there's more people in New York City, so there'd probably be more resources, and, and it's a smaller geographic area. It's easier to get to them. Sure. But you identify that that there's actually altogether some more folks outside of the five boroughs and that even given that population disparity, there's there's still a disparity in treatment access. And then you also found that some of the counties in New York State with the highest overdose rates actually are having less access to opioid treatment programs than the other counties. So it's like it's almost like an increasing scale of disparity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, that that was kind of what I thought at first blush when I looked at the data. I said, okay, well, you know, there's more resources in New York, but that makes sense because that's where a huge portion of the population is, uh, in the city, that is. Um, but to put numbers uh, to what you just said, I think it's like 43% of New Yorkers, sorry, 57% of New Yorkers live outside of uh, the five, five boroughs. 43% live in the city, but 68% of uh, all of uh, the treatment capacity for the opioid uh, treatment programs is located in the city. So, I mean, 43% of the people have 68% of the resources. I mean, that's a pretty significant disparity. Um, and you mentioned the fact that a lot of counties uh, upstate just straight up don't have anything. Um, well, yeah, I mean, uh, Green County, I think, um, was the 11th highest um, for uh, overdose death um, based on uh, the most recent data I have available. Um, it doesn't even have an opioid treatment program. I mean, it is literally one of uh, the top locations in the entire state uh, for this crisis, and they don't have um, a program that's absolutely essential uh, to combating the issue, um, which this gets back to the reason why people are traveling uh, so far for care. I mean, it's not uncommon uh, to hear uh, stories where people are going an hour and a half out of their way um, on any given day just to reach their opioid treatment program, like another county or two over, then turning around and coming home for work. I mean, it, this is extremely disruptive uh, to people's lives, and um, it really impacts uh, their ability uh, to successfully recover uh, from their addiction. Has anyone else noticed these disparities, or is this something that you're just kind of breaking open this past week with your reporting? And if people are noticing, is anybody starting to tackle this in some policy way? Yeah, so I think that this is something that a lot of um, academics have uh, been eyeballing for a while. To be clear, this is uh, this is the case outside of New York as well. Um, what we are really trying to identify um, was what sort of the lay of the land was for our state in particular. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of people, or at least an increasing number of people, are aware of the fact that um, there's been uh, this sort of emerging uh, gulf when it comes to the quality of treatment for people um, in urban uh, versus exurban areas. Um, as far as uh, whether there are policy solutions, um, I think that there's a few different things that are on the table. The methadone bans uh, that I mentioned are, uh, are one of them, um, and uh, there should be more of them forthcoming. Though, again, um, it's been a couple of years now, and there's only two running last time I checked. Um, there are a couple of other things that I know the Hochul administration is doing to try and expand access uh, to treatment. One of them um, is insurance reform. Um, I know that they're trying to make uh, the state's essential plan accessible to, um, to a lot more New Yorkers. But again, this kind of comes back to the problem. Uh, even if uh, you're able to get your insurance uh, to cover um, to cover your treatment um, at the level that you need. I mean, that doesn't really help if uh, there is not a clinic anywhere in like a 50-mile radius, you know? So 
Um, I think that this is uh, something we're going to see uh, the state uh, continue uh, to try and invest in. Um, but, I mean, we're sort of rolling back uh, the tide on an issue um, that has plagued uh, the state for the past, like, two decades and which we've set up our infrastructure to handle um, in a way that's very different than what the crisis looks like now with the emergence of fentanyl. The article we've been talking about uh, is called In Upstate New York, Treatment for Opioid Addiction Gets Harder to Find, and it is up now at WJFFRadio.org. It's also up at NYSFocus.com, along with all of uh, Spencer's reporting. We've been talking to New York Focus reporter Spencer Norris. Spencer, I want to thank you for taking your time to go over all this with us. No, thank you. We'll take a break, and when we come back, the latest headlines from today's edition of the Sullivan County Democrat. This is Radio Chatsko. Support for Radio Catskill comes from Farm Arts Collective, located on Willow Wisp Organic Farm in Damascus, Pennsylvania. Farm Arts Collective's programs intersect the practices of farming, performance, food, and ecology. FarmArtsCollective.org From the Community Foundation of Orange and Sullivan, a publicly supported philanthropic institution, CFOSNY.org, and from listeners like you who donate at WJFFRadio.org. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, there is a lot of misconduct among academic researchers, even fraud. Can it be stopped? Identifying the problem is not the same thing as changing our practices. And how does scientific fraud become big business? Publishers earn more from publishing more. It's a volume play. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. This afternoon at 1 o'clock on Radio Catskill. This is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. Every Tuesday, we check in with Derek Kirk, the editor of the Sullivan County Democrat, about what's making headlines in today's edition. Here's Patricio Rubio and Derek. The big story coming out of Bethel. I know for a while, Bethel has been talking about reconstructing their town hall. It's a really cramped space. They believe it used to be a dentist at one point. I remember a couple of years ago, there was a presentation about plans that were presented of how the future town hall will look like. But as right now, you're telling me that they secured an actual funding for this, not only for the town hall, but they secured $9.9 million for the town hall and the highway board. Yeah, the town board of Bethel were given a presentation with loans from the USDA, which totaled about $9.9 million, which is going to go towards their highway garage and the new town hall. It should be split up. Six point three million is going to the highway department for the garage, and then three point six million is going for the new town hall. So it's not fifty fifty split, but still significant amounts of funding for both projects. The highway department garage that is going to be built on Route fifty five E between Bethel and Swan Lake, but the new town hall is anticipated to be built in the same location. And it's expected to be a 30-foot by 40-foot structure. Like you said, the present town hall in Bethel feels very cramped and has a history to it that did not allow for much growth, physical growth for the town board of Bethel and all its functions. So the new town hall, the floor plans for right now are allowed to give it a little more space for municipal activity and government action that has been sorely needed in the town of Bethel. And during the construction of the new town hall, the offices will be temporarily housed in the old Duggan School. So they won't be without facilities while the old town hall is taking and taken out and the new town hall is erected. I'm sorry if you mentioned that and I missed it. Did they give a timeline of when this work should be completed? I believe... The next step is that the USDA will review the site plans and send comments back to the architects who the, I'm assuming the town would appoint or go through bidding or their usual process for hiring architects. I'm not too sure how on their processes for that. 
but they will go about it that way, get final approval from a few more higher up approvals, and it will eventually be passed down. Both products will be hopefully given the check mark for the town board to then take back over. Uh, plans and specifications for both of the projects will be available online on the town of Bethel website. So those interested and curious as to what the future buildings may look like, where they're located and what their new roles might be, can find more information on the website as well. Let's move over to the village of Monticello. The elections are coming up for the villages on March 19th. Monticello has run into some problems there. It seems like the Democrats, the mayor, George Nicolato's, Carmen Rue and Michael Banks, are not on the ballots as far as Democrats go, but now they're running as independent candidates. Can you tell us exactly what happened at the Board of Elections and what exactly prevented them from being on the ballot as Democrats? I'm not too sure exactly what was the obstruction, but with the technicality being in place, it, it does result in the three candidates Mayor George Nicolatos and Board of Trustees Carmen Rue and Michael Banks too have to run on the independent ticket. We spoke with Mayor George Nicolatos and it appears that this little bump in the road is not hindering his path on re-election to continue leading the village. He still seems in good spirits. Uh, We were not able to get in contact with Carmen Rue or Michael Banks, but the mayor is still holding his head high as to the push forward for re-election. And as you said, the elections will be held on March 19th this year. And as that gets closer, we'll be sure to keep a close eye on the runnings and what ends up happening for the leadership of the village of Monticello. So more to come on that in the future, definitely. I see in your reporting, the Democrat, that uh, the Monticello police chief resigned recently, abruptly from his post. And now we have the village uh, elections coming up with this snack food, the Board of Elections. I'm just wondering whether with all of this talk in the background with the national elections about the conversations coming up again about voter security and, and, and whether our elections are safe and fair from some populations of in America. And I'm wondering, like I said, George Nagelato said that everything is an up and up and positive. I do wonder how much this would have an effect on voters going into the village election, knowing that the snack food happened whether they'll be confused as finding out that whether these candidates are not on the Democratic line and what, now they are on the independent lines. Do you, what do you think? Do you think that this kind of uh, things will put a hindrance on the election? I'm not sure. I definitely would acknowledge that there is a population in America and in Sullivan County that have shown distrust from previous elections and the validity of the counts, the final counts. But I'm not sure if this little hiccup in the three candidates run for re-election, if that reflects much distrust in the, on the local level, I'd imagine that voters for the village of Monticello, they've come to know Nicolanos, Rue and Banks, and if they see them on the ballot, I imagine whatever party they're under, they will be recognized. I do not believe I know of anyone who will be challenging them for their spots at this moment. But it, it is definitely something to be wary about. But I do believe that ca- at least in the countywide and mostly municipal-wide, the ballots and the voting counts have been trusted and not and are going undisputed for the most part. We'll have to see when March 19th hits, but it's a straightforward march to there. Let's look at some lighter news here. Winterfest at the Roscoe Mountain Club. This is an annual event that happens. And it's a new location at the Roscoe Mountain Club. What can you tell us about this event and what happened and all of some of the, any highlights you have? Absolutely. So I was there and it was a really nice day. The Roscoe Beer Company, their annual Winterfest, it was on Saturday. And it was at a new venue this year, thanks to the recently announced partnership between the beer company and Roscoe Mountain Club, Fremont, which was formerly the Tanana Lake Golf Course. They had a number of attractions, live music going all day. And one that last in past previous years, they had a lot of attractions like ice carving and horse-drawn carriages. And it was fun for a lot of young families and older families, people of all ages and their pets. It was a really pleasant day. And one major 
upgrade from this year from last, and this comes with the new venue, is their ice rink, which gave festival guards the ability to lace up their skates and see if they could make it around the rink a couple of times without falling down too much. So it was nice to see the kids and uh, their parents and a lot of older uh, festival goers to, you know, try get their try to get their ice legs underneath them. Did you lace up your ice skates? I did. You did? I was able to get out on the ice, yeah. And I, I was able to go around a couple of times. I only almost fell over once because I hooked the wall too hard. But <laughs> We're talking to the editor for the Sullivan County Democrat, Derek Kurt, letting us know what's happening on the pages of the Democrat on newsstands now, or you can check them online at scdemocratonline.com. Derek, thank you so much for joining us on the program, and we'll talk to you again next week. Sounds great. For Radio Catskill, I'm Patricio Robayo. And more from the Democrat with Maggie Fitzpatrick, the health and wellness columnist in her health and wellness column is called Moving Toward Health, and we check in with her every Tuesday. It's no different today, right after this break. This is Radio Chatsko. I'm Callison Stratton, a singer-songwriter, public historian, and host of Liberation Station here on WJFF Radio Catskill. Liberation Station is a show that highlights the work of female and femme-presenting performers across genre and time. It's my little way of balancing the scales of representation on the radio. Join me for Liberation Station every Saturday evening at 7 p.m., only on Radio Catskill. Listen local. You're on the go, and Radio Catskill can go with you. Listen live to Radio Catskill on your phone. Just type wjffradio.org into your browser and listen wherever you are. Stay up to date on local news, culture, and NPR on the go on your phone with Radio Catskill. You're listening to Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. Every Tuesday, we check in with Maggie Fitzpatrick. She's the health and wellness columnist for the Sullivan County Democrat about her column in today's issue. And she's here this morning. Today's column is called Choose Your Hard. Yes, it is. Good morning, Maggie. <laughs> Good morning. What if everything's hard? It is. <laughs> I know. That's why we have to choose which one. Okay. All right. So what do you mean by choose your hard? Okay, so the perspective, I just want to like set the scene first. Yeah. Okay. okay. So the perspective is how can we make our health journey a little bit easier, mm-hmm. right? How can we make all of the decisions that we have to make or the actions, you know, how can we make it a little bit easier? So like you just said, everything is hard. Right? <laughs> everything is life. hard. Yeah, <laughs> it is. And the choose your hard part comes in. When we're making decisions, we have to choose. Do we want to face the hard part now or later? Okay. Do we want to just get it out of the way and make life a little bit easier, like we're rolling downhill after the hard decision? Or do we want to defer the hard part to later? It's like the, what do you want, the good news or the bad news first? Right? Yeah. The choice. Okay. Exactly. So there's two categories to, of options we can make, you say. Yeah. So what are those? Yeah. So... We can choose to make the choice that makes our life a little bit harder in this moment, but makes it easier later. Or we can choose to make a choice that makes our life easier in this moment, but harder later. Okay. Right. So in the article, I use an example of food, but this could apply to anything. Right. So let's say after this, we have to decide what to eat for lunch. Right. And we have not planned out what to eat for lunch yet. Um, and so we don't have, you know, there's no preparation, nothing. If we have to choose what to eat for lunch, there's two ways we can make the decision. You know you have to eat lunch every day for the rest of the week as well, right? It's not just today. Um, and so we can choose to make our life a little bit easier right now. Just pick this one meal for lunch, go out to eat, whatever it is, right? And we have lunch, but then... 
we're just deferring the hard part because now we have to do it all over again, right? We have to do it for dinner, breakfast, lunch, the next day. We haven't set ourselves up for success in any way to not have to make that decision again, right? Whereas if we think about it from a perspective of, okay, how can I make this decision, maybe spend a little bit more time, energy, effort on this decision to make my life easier moving forward. This is where maybe we plan out lunch for the whole week, (laughs) right? We plan out lunch for the whole week. So we make our decision right now a little bit more challenging to then make the rest of our week a lot easier. Yes. Yeah. Were you in my kitchen this morning when I was... (laughs) You know, that's interesting. I was like, I don't, I don't have time to do anything. I got to go. I'll figure it out later for lunch. Yeah. yeah. And that's what happens. Yeah. Right. That's what happens. We, we kind of end up spiraling mm. into our default, which is usually how do I make this as easy as possible right now? Mm-hmm. And that is great when we are in a moment where like that's the only option. Right. But if we want to look at it through the perspective of how do I move towards health? Then we need to look at it from a perspective of how can I make myself not have to make as many hard decisions, right? Because when we are trying to move towards health, every meal is a challenging decision because you have to think about what am I going to eat? Where am I going to get it from? Does it fit into, you know, my nutrition goals, right? Does it have enough protein? Does it have vegetables? All this stuff. And if you want to eat healthy, it's challenging to find meals on the go. Yeah. I think you're, you know, putting it through that lens of, you know, moving toward the health or being healthy about it versus the lens of, I don't have any time. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to now at lunchtime have fewer choices to make and they might not be as healthy. Uh, it's a good way to think about it. I mean, so when you're trying to break this pattern, there are some challenges, mental challenges. Are there some other challenges you can help us get through? Yeah, it's challenging. It really is, right? Because the default, we our default setting is, let me just solve whatever problem is in front of me in this moment, right? That's the default setting is, what's the problem right now and how do I fix it right now and I'll worry about the rest later. But when we are trying to change our habit or the way that we live or our state of being, right, our health, we have to change the way that we make decisions. So when it comes to changing our pattern, we have to slow down a little bit, right? We have to take a deep breath and think, how can I help my future self, right? How can I help my future self by maybe making a little bit of a sacrifice in this moment, right? And when we can make that decision once, it makes it easier to make that decision again the next time, right? But we have to we have to think ahead a little bit and not get so caught up in what is going on right now in this moment. And that is really hard when you're in a particular moment of stress, Right. So we have to think about how can I start to make those decisions when I'm not in that really stressful moment? What was your inspiration for this column? Honestly, I was going back through some of my really early articles and that this was um, similar to when I wrote maybe like almost a year and a half ago. And I just kind of rewrote it from this perspective. Do you know what you're having for lunch? What I'm having for lunch. Yeah, we actually have some food meal prepped in the fridge. So, yeah. So good. Yeah, see, <laughs> it, but it makes my life a lot easier because after this, so I have like a 40-minute drive home from the studio, right? Drive home. And then I have a meeting at noon. And right now it's, I don't know what time it is, like 1030, right? So by the time I get there, I'm going to have to eat lunch prep for this call. And so if I didn't have that decision made, I, I wouldn't have enough time. Mm-hmm. Right? All right. You're always helping us with insight, (laughs) moving toward health. I'm going to now have a different decision when I make my lunch decisions tomorrow. Today, I'm kind of stuck. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'll try my best. Right. But this is a great example because right now, okay, you're going to make the decision for lunch today and you're already thinking about how can I make this easier in the future? That's, that's the gap. That's the change right there. Right. It might not be this moment, but how do you prep for it in the next one? And how do you move toward health as you're always telling us? Yeah. Maggie Fitzpatrick, she is the health and wellness columnist for the Sullivan County Democrat. You can find her current column in today's edition. 
It's on newsstands now or online at scdemocratonline.com. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll take a break. And when we come back, Classical Kit is here to talk about some of the activities that are going on at the Music Institute of Sullivan and Ulster Counties this weekend. This is Radio Chatskill. Hi there. This is Brian, host of The Secret Show. Friday nights at 9. I'll be playing a mix of indie, alternative, college, rock, and pop. Some new music and some old classics. That's The Secret Show, Friday nights at 9, only on Radio Catskill. Listen local. Tonight on the Local Edition, treatment for opioid addiction is getting harder to find in upstate New York. New York Focus found upstate residents have to travel almost three times as far as their counterparts in the city to get treatment. Reporter Spencer Norris joins us live. Plus, January's almost over. Municipal property tax letters have gone out. Sullivan County Treasurer Nancy Buck talks to us about taxes. It's coming up tonight at 6 on the Local Edition, only on Radio Catskill. Local news, culture, and NPR. Hello, I'm Thane Peterson, host of Living Jazz. You know, jazz is a great improvised art form that started in America, spread around the world, and is still going strong. That's why every Saturday afternoon I bring you the best in current jazz. It's the newest, most interesting music you can hear anywhere. Join me for Living Jazz, noon to two Saturday, here on Radio Catskill. Welcome back to Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. The Music Institute of Sullivan and Ulster Counties provides opportunities for people of all ages to develop their varying levels of musical experiences in an environment that acknowledges and nurtures the whole person. Our own classical kit is here with Anastasia Solberg to talk about the Music Institute of Sullivan and Ulster County's Community String Ensemble Open Rehearsal happening this Sunday. Good morning to you both. Good morning. Good morning. Hi, Anastasia. So uh, I remember when we talked back in the fall, you said this would be the time of year where people would be registering for the winter session and uh, joining the community orchestra if they were interested. So tell us a little bit about the community orchestra. Okay. So the community orchestra, I'm just going to give a short history, started actually in Liberty, New York, at Tassa's bookstore, the Oracle bookstore, when that existed. That was before 9-11. And then after 9-11, there was, there was a little bit of change, but this was just when I'd moved up here. There seemed to be a need for people to play chamber music. So a uh, motley crew of people, all ages, got together, and I just tried to find music that would work. And I was, I had somebody in the kids' book section, and I had somebody else in the corner in the front, and I had somebody in the back room, and I ran around like a, you know, chicken with the head cut off, trying to accommodate everybody. And then I just decided to put together a, a, a little orchestra, so to speak. And our first couple of performances were in the Oracle Bookstore. And then it became basically a string ensemble, and I opened up my school, and we moved our quarters to the school, and now the school is in Ellenville, and we keep on going, and every year, twice a year, we meet. For a while, there was also a summer session, so it was three times a year, but for two year, two times a year, for sure, we've been meeting and doing a performance at the end of each semester. So um, sometimes we're very big. Because then there was a period of time where at Ulster there was a string ensemble as well, so I would combine the two as concerts, and uh, we would have people from Ulster come in that were not as advanced, and the more advanced would go to Ulster, and there was a... But that's the music program at Ulster, unluckily, has closed, so there is no more string ensemble there. And um, so now we have been growing again, and we were, I think, 18. Yeah, I think uh, when I talked to you last, you said you had about 18 last semester, and it was a, a mixture of retirees and teens and uh, 
just people of all ages. And so do quite a few of them carry over into the next semester? Usually it's a continuum, yes. I mean, there's always some people who their life changes and they leave. There are some who only come in for one semester and then say, well, I've got other things to do and I don't want to do this anymore. I just, I, it, it didn't fit me. Um, uh, right now we have a nice crossover. We have our youngest is 12. Our oldest is, I think, 80-ish. Um, and uh, we have a nice swath in the middle of people in the 35 to 45 age range, which that hasn't actually always been the case. So there's been, so, and we have, we, and we have teens, of course. So um, it's a nice combination of, you know, there's like three or four in each age category and, and people interact with each other. This is an intergenerational group. It's very important that, that aspect of it. Um, and uh, yeah, so we're starting again, and I thought it would be really great to get some more of the word out there for those who have their instruments in their closets or have their instruments where they can see them but haven't played them for 10 years or 20 years or 30 years or 40 years. Right, and so... Like try again. Yeah, so um, if, if someone uh, does have that instrument in their closet and they wanted to come out, what should they expect to happen on Sunday? Bedlam? <laughs> no. <laughs> if a lot of people show up that I don't know, that will be that would be exactly the word. No, what I will be doing on um, I have uh, two three levels of pieces that we'll be working on. I've already chosen the literature for the semester. Let's put it that way. And I have all parts I have people on all parts, so everything is there. And some people have the music. Most people will have not have looked at it because that's usually the case. So basically, it will be a sight reading session. We will be going, what we'll be doing is we're going to start um, with the easier pieces. I have people who are just beginning, who have played the instrument less than a year, who um, I choose certain music that doesn't have, isn't as complicated. So they get the skills of learning how to play an ensemble and, um, and, and still have it within their technical capabilities. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then, and they will play a limited, I call it the limited edition. And so we're going to start with that group of people, that group of music first, and then we'll go, we'll progress from there. And, uh, so anybody who comes who doesn't feel like they're in shape or or isn't was never really an advanced player was just a basic you knew the knew the basics they would be able to play in this limited edition group which I will in reality have a separate um, hour beforehand working with them so that they can get up to shape so like from in the real deal, five to six would be the limited edition, where we would concentrate on those those who are beginners or intermediate beginner, beginner, advanced beginners, and then um, they would join the larger group at six o'clock, and then from six to seven, they would we would work on those pieces that they're part of. They would be excused. Seven to eight, we'll work on the more advanced literature, and then that would be the rehearsal. Um, of course, there's breaks in there. So there's socialization, right. which is really, really important. Believe me, so important. When um, when we had the orchestra in the days where it was in the back of my house up in Ulster Heights, and the orchestra was at least eighteen or even bigger, and I had also all ages, but we would have we would have these great rehearsals. People would show up around supper time. I'd have a big soup, and I had bread, rolls, whatever, and food, and people would eat something, then we'd rehearse, and we'd have a break and have tea and eat some more, and we'd rehearse. And we had, these rehearsals would sometimes go on for four hours. Of course, we weren't playing for four hours, but they would just, there was no beginning and end. There was a beginning, but there was never an end predetermined. And it became sort of like a family would get together, and we would have these rehearsals. And I wish we could do that again, but everybody has 
you know, people want to get home. People don't want to drive too late at night. People need to, you know, they need a programmed time set for this. So I've become very normal and we have rehearsal from six to eight with a break. But the break is very important. And there's right. always lovely food. So, um, so if, if, if you're listening and you have that instrument and you were afraid when you heard this, you were going to be showing up for an audition where you had to play by yourself <laughs> and uh, be chosen, uh, rest assured from what you've told us, Anastasia, that um, yeah. it's an atmosphere that's welcoming to all levels and all ages, and it's definitely worth coming out and giving it a try. Um, yes. It sounds like you've really structured in a in a way where it can appeal to the most people. So, um, but just you know, before, what I want to, what I oh sorry, go ahead. Well, I just want to make sure while I've got you on the phone that we also mention a couple of other things. But uh, yes. wrap that up, and then I just want to mention uh, drum circle and the coffee house. Yeah. The drum circle started last week. We had a nice turnout. Um, it's really, really interesting. Uh, I partook in the drum circle last week. I won't always be there because I've got to leave early. Um, but he showed specific techniques on how to play the drum um, and worked on all those techniques. Then he worked on s- basic rhythms. Then he worked on, you know, he taught, he taught the rhythms, explained where the rhythm came from, what, you know, in Africa, where, how it was used, when it was used, showed how to change, um, and built from there. So it was a really, really comprehensive. And me as a musician, I learned a lot, and it was not easy. It was, you know, it was, it was actually a challenge. And um, and that I found great. And even those who were non-musicians, most of them were non-musicians who were there. Um, they also, everybody learned something from it. It was just such a wonderful hour of, of learning and enjoying and playing. And you get to play also then, you know, actually just keep on playing. And, and he would improvise on top of that and do things. It was just, it was just really, really Great. So right. I'm looking forward to this Thursday. Yeah. So that's Thursdays, um, Thursdays from that's 6 Thursday. to 7.30. And then um, this Friday, um, the uh, Music on Market Coffee House is presenting... No, Saturday. Saturday. Oh, Saturday, I'm sorry. Saturday, Saturday is presenting Saturday, uh, yeah. the Bernstein Bard Trio Plus One. Yes, that means there are going to be four of them. Right. I, mean, I can't write the Bernstein Bars Trio and then have a quartet show up, can I? Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they haven't told me what the other instrument is yet, so I don't even know. It's just a plus one. So, yes. And they've been playing this February coffee house. I think this might be their third or fourth year. Um, it's always been, you know, it's been the Valentine's, Valentine's themed, so to speak. So um, I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, they always put on a great show, and I encourage everybody to come. It'll be a lovely, lovely evening. If you just want to listen, if you want to dance in the back, whatever, it, it'll be just really great. Right. So, and what else do we have on the program? Nothing, right? Yeah. All right. Well, yeah. and um, and we're gonna so. Um, you know, people can go to misucatskills.org to get information and to get on the mailing list so you never miss one of the coffeehouse performances or the other events of Misu. Um, and we'll be touching base with you again uh, in a few weeks, uh, Anastasia, about your upcoming concert of um, of your duo at the Monticello Library. So we're going to catch oh, right. up with you about that uh, later. Oh, let me not forget to March, mention the Song right? Club. Yes, that's in oh, March. Oh, right, right. Let me not, the, yeah, the well, Song so Club, song club the was last... canceled, right? But it's Yes, I'm very sorry. Uh, Debbie has some, had some very serious health issues that had to, uh, that took 
forefront here. She was not, she was actually not allowed to do Song Club this month. Um, so she is very excited about being back on her feet again and being there again the next, the end of this month. So the last Saturday, whatever that day is. Uh, right. I believe February 24th. Yes, February 24th. Yeah. She will be there. And that's also been growing. We've had two so far and we've been, it's been growing and everybody really loves it. It is so much fun. I'm over. Unless I have to play myself someplace else, I will always be there for Song Club because it's just great. Well, um, yeah, we, we enjoyed our conversation with Debbie uh, when, when you were starting up that program this year. Um, so, um, and Debbie will also be leading her, blue, her B2s in concert at the Coffee House in March. Um, that's a nine-piece right. a cappella women's ensemble. And they are absolutely fantastic. Uh, just really, really incredible. Well, so we you... have a lot coming up. And, uh, yeah, and I just wanted to say that anybody who's interested in the string ensemble, um, if you're interested, uh, you go to the website and email me. Just go to the, you know, contact me or information or whatever it is, or phone the school and leave a message because we don't pick up the phone. Just leave a message. And I'll get back to you in case you wanted to see the music behind beforehand, if you wanted to talk to me about what level you were or you know, anything you want to talk to me or ask me about, please don't hesitate um, because I'll be glad to talk to you beforehand if you feel like you need to do that before you come. Anastasia, Whoa. thanks so much for joining us this morning and for all of the great work you're doing at Music Institute of Sullivan in Ulster Counties. And again, more information at misucatskills.org. You take care. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. And before we go, bye. Kit, um, want to talk about something old, something new. You've got some Grammy yeah. stuff coming up. Yeah, on your... I'm, I'm excited. You know, every year I, I wait for those nominations. But, you know, when they came out in November, I was busy with the holidays and didn't look that closely. So I've been scrambling to get all those CDs in and uh, they've been arriving the last few days. And wow, there is some amazing classical music that's been nominated. And, um, I'm gonna, I'm putting together a special edition of something old, something new that I'll be uploading probably on Friday. And the Grammys are this weekend. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's some great, great stuff. And anything uh, in particular that sticks out to you oh, that you really, uh, well, found fascinating and Yujo, or joy? Yujo Wang is a pianist who, Yesterday, I did my walking while listening to the piano concerto that she does that was nominated. And I got like 47 peak heart rate minutes out of it. <laughs> and I don't, she probably got 250 playing it, but just extraordinary pianist. And, and then Yo-Yo Ma and Emmanuel Axe and sorry, I forgot the name of the violinist. They've actually done a trio, piano trio version of Beethoven symphonies, wow. which is, and it's beautiful, just stunning. Yep. And the so, award ceremony coming up on Sunday. Yes. Classical Kit, thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Happy to be here. All right. That's all for this edition of Radio Chat Skill. Tomorrow on Radio Chatska, we speak to Ari Kravitz, new owner of the Darby Hotel, Randall Lane and Judith Brown of Somewhere Co. about their collaborative upcoming group textile show called Color Thread Cloth. That's tomorrow on Radio Chatskill. And you can find this episode, past episodes, and all of our local programming at our website, wjffradio.org. And remember to follow us on Instagram and on Facebook, and even YouTube. I'm Tim Bruno. Thanks for listening. Radio Catskill supporters include the Sterling Business and Technology Park, located at Exit 17 on Interstate 84 in Northeast Pennsylvania, offering opportunities to locate or expand businesses on property zoned for manufacturing and other uses. More information at sterlingbusinesspark.com. And listeners like you, who donate at wjffradio.org.
This week on the Retro Cocktail Hour, we'll hear the mambo beat of Tito Puente, private eye jazz from a 50s film noir, and the exotic sounds of Arthur Lyman. I'm Daryl Brogdon. Why not join me where the music's shaken, not stirred? The Retro Cocktail Hour. On Radio Catskill, Wednesday night at 7. This is Radio Chatskill, WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello, and streaming online at WJFFradio.org. The uh, forecast for the area is today, a high of 31, some sun, uh, cloudy this afternoon, low 26 tonight, mostly cloudy tomorrow, and a high of 35. And we're keeping an eye on some snow, possible Thursday evening into Friday afternoon. On Point is coming up next. This is Radio Catskill, local news, culture, and NPR.